10, uh, sorry, chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And I usually start by reading scripture. I will not depart from that. But I would like to give some illustrations of why this passage is so very, very relevant. Um, It seems the Lord has impressed upon me this week how important it is, this very concept of authority as a, as a one of our way, one of the ways that God reveals himself to us. So let's read Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Who would have no fear of the one who is in authority? Or pardon me, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. And you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on, wrong, on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all that is owed, pay all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself." Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in the Orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, but uh, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, I'm not sure how far we will get in this today. Um, This is probably, despite the doctrinal complexity of some of the passages that we have studied thus far, this is probably the most difficult and most uh, potentially, there's more potential here for um, misrepresenting God's word than perhaps any other chapter. Uh, And it's because um, what we have here is a principle that is laid out for submission to authority that does not address all the possible abuses and ramifications of evil authority. For example, when an evil ruler um, actually opposes what is good and exalts what is evil. So we don't have here a blanket, blind submission to authority under every circumstance. There are groups that would interpret it that way, and therefore they are perpetual targets for abuse and tend to be fleeing from one government to another rather than um, any form of resistance. Um, And they do this conscientiously, and I believe many are brothers and sisters in Christ. But let's be very careful. I listened to, actually John Piper is a a far more in-depth expositor than I and and far wiser and uh, I think uh, much more cautious. So I, I thought that listening to some of his messages would be helpful. And he prefaced the first message by quoting from 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 1 Corinthians, maybe it's 2nd, where it talks about um, the, uh, the 
leadership of the church, how the works that are wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up in the fire because the responsibility of the leaders is to build well and with the right materials upon the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John Piper, as, as eloquent and as, as uh, a great of an expositor as he is, had his congregation pray that he would not represent God's word and be building wood, hay, and stubble upon the foundation that has already been laid. So if you would, even in your hearts, that you would pray that God's word would be rightly divided and rightly represented. All right, now, what this passage says on its face is easy to absorb. The general... Um, the general message here is that the authorities, the temporal authorities, unbelieving authorities in any form of governance and ruling in our world, that they are all ordained of God and that they are servants of God. They don't even know it, but they are. This is God's order. This is what he has laid out. And so we're going to go through, and we'll spend the most time in the first seven verses, just to examine this concept of governing authority and our responsibility to it. We are in the part of Romans, which is a response to the mercies of God that are presented in chapters 1 through 11. Collectively, the gospel and all of the all of the truth that is embodied in the gospel, the ultimate salvation of the whole world, people from every tribe and nation, because of God's gracious act in intervening and providing propitiation and atonement for sin, so that we can be recipients of his grace, that we can be freed from his wrath, that we can have that hope of Romans chapter 8 of being... um, of looking forward to the glorious liberation that awaits us as children of God. Uh, So chapters 12, 13, 14, all the way to the end, are practical responses. And and in chapter 12, we looked at the the believer's um, response in in the light of how we treat one another within the church. In chapter 12, we saw that. And also how we interact with the world around us. That whole idea of not seeking vengeance. The whole idea of God being the one to, to carry out vengeance if it, is, if it is to be carried out. And the under, underpinning of love and the circulating agape love that, that flows through everything else. If the love of Christ is not flowing through everything that we do and our actions and activities with the church and with it with the world, if, if it is not um, embedded with the aroma of love, then it is worthless because it is not representing Christ. But you've got Christians. Ah, that should be pretty easy because we all pretty much agree. I say that almost a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but ideally we would all agree and we would get along and we would love each other. It gets a little harder when it's the neighbor, the pagan down the road. How do you love that person in the same way you love a Christian? How can you, how can you um, turn the other cheek to someone who is um, morally repulsive and disgusting and um, blasphemous even in their character? But let's really make it personal. Let's talk about government. Let's talk about taxes. Let's talk about rules and regulations and ordinances that we don't agree with. And then let's consider that this government, it might be off the rails completely and might not even be. Legitimate. I'm not saying anything about our government, but that happens. Um, to put this into perspective, think of yourself in, in communist China or 
in, um, in another place in the world where, um, where Christians are not even allowed to assemble to worship. And scripture tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together to worship. And here is this passage saying, submit to the authorities. You see, this is not an easy one to digest. There are implications that need to be worked out. There is soul searching that needs to be done. Um, and there is, there is judgment that needs to be made whether we are, we are going to obey God or man in some of these cases. So uh, let's go first. Let's start right at the beginning. I'm, I've entitled this message, Let Every Person Be Subject to the Governing Authorities. That's basically that's a good title or subjection to governing authority. Uh, it kind of seems to come out of nowhere. But as I've just explained, it does flow and it does follow the logic of where the apostle has gone. Um, but in any case, it's abrupt. All of a sudden, we're talking about politics. Some of the commentators say, well, chapters 12 deals with our ethics toward uh, each other and toward the church or toward the church and toward the world. And then chapter 13 deals with politics, or at least the first seven verses do. I think that's fair. In a Christian worldview, your worldview is the, the lens, the grid through which you see the world. If you have a biblical worldview, it's going to affect every aspect of your life. It's going to affect your view about education. It's going to affect your, your view about politics. It's going to affect your view about economics. There is nothing left untouched when we have the mind of Christ which is contrary to the world, which is not conformed to the world. The word of God is going to affect our outlook on these things. Um, so this is one reason why the Apostle Paul is commenting on this. This is like picture the environment in Rome. Five years prior to the writing of Romans, approximately five years, Claudius, the emperor, had ex exiled and had expelled all of the Jews from Rome. Among some of those folks were Priscilla and Aquila, who, um, though they were, I don't know when they were converted to Christianity, but they were also Jewish. And so there was this massive exodus of Jews from Rome, which included many Christians, because the Romans were blaming them for all of the unrest, and probably rightly so, because the Jews did tend to be agitators. They did tend to, to, uh, to rail against the emperor who was uh, declared himself and, and revered as a god, and they had legitimate reason. So, uh, so Claudius, he kicked them all out. By the time Paul's writing Romans... Uh, that immediate crisis is over, and they're back, and there's this sort of tentative peace. But they are very much aware that the authorities can turn on a dime. They're not very predictable, that they do not always have the best interests of all of their subjects at heart. Um, the Apostle Paul has suffered both under the hands of the Jews and under the hands of the Romans. He knows that there is injustice. And yet, when you think of the Apostle Paul in the, in the book of Acts, you know that there is times where he actually appeals to his Roman citizenship and, and receives the protection of the state because of that. So this is very, very complicated. But the general principle that's laid down is that of submission to authority. Let's look first at the source of all authority. Verse, uh, the second part of verse 1, For there is no authority except from God. Point number one is the source of authority. There is no authority except from God. Picture any authority figure. There is no authority except from God. That's a heavy one to absorb. They had some Experience. Well, I'm going to say that for a little bit later. Okay, there's no authority except from God. We've uh, already read about Jesus as he came into Jerusalem, uh, acting in the authority 
as the Son of Man, also as the Son of God. But we know that he only did what he saw his Father doing. And he made himself dependent upon the Father uh, in order to execute the authority that uh, his authority. And he could actually legitimately walk into the temple and say, my house should be called a house of prayer. Jesus, as God, had, had the authority. And when he delegated his disciples, and when he gave them the Great Commission at the end of Matthew chapter, uh, at the end of Matthew, uh, chapter 18, and also it's found in Luke and Acts. Um, he says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Now we'll get there eventually. Matthew chapter 28, um, 18-ish. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, who gave it? It came from God. Now, this is one of those situations where all means all. <laughs> all authority. Whatever Satan does on this earth, Satan does under the authority of Jesus Christ, although there is delegated authority and permissive, permissive authority given even to Satan in this world now. But who's overseeing? Who's in charge of all of it? It's Christ. God has given all authority to Christ. He sits now at the right hand of the Father, the, the place of authority. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. So that is earth. That is now. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice what this doesn't say. Go, therefore, and proclaim a political message. Go, therefore, and organize yourselves into a peaceful and lawful society. Go, therefore, and at the point of the sword, forward the agenda of Jesus. There's none of that in there. There is a spiritual mandate to make followers of Christ who did not reign with, or he did not call us to reign by political means. There is a separation between the things of Caesar and the things of God. We really have to keep this in mind as we read this passage, that, there, that our citizenship and the, the, the authority that matters to us and the homeland that matters to us, our citizenship, as Paul says in, in, in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. We are aliens and strangers and sojourners on this earth. Now think about your rights as, as someone who is, like, you, you go down to the United States for a visit. You toe the line when you're in another country. Or, you, or Mexico, or anywhere else. Because you don't have, uh, you, you can't assume that that government is going to um, care for you in the same way. You have more respect. You have a greater respect because you're in a foreign country, and you obey the laws, and you, you submit yourself to those laws. So let's add that little dimension we're not even literally technically citizens of this world. We're passing through. We're visitors. We're on a tourist visa. And really what matters is the authority of the one who is sovereign of heaven, where we actually belong. So this, the source of authority. Now, I'd like to, to point you to a really interesting passage in John chapter 19 where Jesus is before Pilate. And this demonstrates the submission of temporal human authority to the authority of Christ. Matthew, or, or John chapter 19, in verse 10. And Jesus is before Pilate. So Pilate said to him, Remember, Jesus didn't open his mouth. You will, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? 
In our passage, we talked about he does not bear the sword in vain. He's saying, I bear the sword. I hold the sword. Your life and death are in my power. What does Jesus say to him? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Proving, proving that God is indeed the source of all authority. You would have no authority unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. Now, he was not absolving Pilate of his sin, but he was saying, my father has given you authority to do what you're about to do. And think about this. It wasn't a good thing Pilate was about to do, but it served the purpose of the one who sent Jesus. It served God's purpose. It was his authority. Um, so, and you could, we could look at many other passages. Psalm 2, where the kings of the earth take their stand and conspire against the Lord and his anointed one. And it says, he who sits in the heavens will laugh in derision. He will laugh at their petty plans. And these men who are exalting, apparently in their own self-appointed authority, who are exalting themselves against God, are going to be humbled. And the plea of the psalm is that they would repent. You have the case of Nebuchadnezzar, who, um, after hearing his dream, hearing the dream and the, of the, the uh, head of gold and the uh, the arms of, bro- of silver and the bronze and the, and the feet of iron and clay. And Daniel says, well, that represents all the kingdoms of the world. And you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the greatest of these kingdoms. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? He goes out and he builds himself a statue, an image, all of gold. As if to say, well, God, uh, this, this dream... That's one potential outcome. But because of my greatness and my glory, I'm going to exalt myself. And I'm going to live under my... I'm going to be, I'm going to be my self-appointed authority. And I'm going to be the greatest king ever. And so God literally makes him crazy. And he goes into the desert and he eats, uh, he eats grass like a cow and his nails grow long like an eagle's. And then after seven, I don't know whether it was seven years, it might have been seven months or seven, well, his nails grew, so it had to be at least seven months. Okay, uh, seven times, the scripture says. Then he came to his senses, and he acknowledged that God was the one who exalts kings, and God the one who brings them down. So however a person comes to be representing and executing authority, that person is there, whether it's through democracy or through coup or through, or through um, divine right of kings, whatever it might be. It is God who has given them that authority by permission to do his bidding and his purpose. Now let's look at, we've looked at the source of all authority. Let's look at the stupidity of antagonizing authority. We could learn from John Mellencamp, who's saying, I, have, I fight authority, authority always wins. <laughs> it tends to be the way that it goes. But it says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted from God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So, as a general principle, the authorities are there, and they're appointed by God. They're appointed authorities. They're chosen. They're given that specific mandate, and resisting them will incur judgment. Again, please don't look at this as a universal grid says, whatever the authorities are doing, I can't resist it. If the authorities are rounding up Jews 
to put them into trucks and take them to concentration camps where they will starve them and then kill them. And you know about this. God's law is higher. And the sin of omission would be to let this go on and do nothing about it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a a German theologian who actually stepped out and at first was very complacent to the activities of Hitler and was a a good German and, uh, you know, the the infiltration of Nazism into the churches, he kind of put up with that for a while. But then when he became aware of what was going on, he and other confessing Lutherans were, were some of the few Christians to actually take a stand against the... Um, the atrocities and the inhumanity that was going on. Um, Bonhoeffer became involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler, which I I don't, you know, that was an issue that he had to resolve in his own conscience, whether killing this dictator was the right thing and the obedient thing to do. But I'm just saying that there is a time when authority abdicates its God-given mandate and that there is a time to resist. But let's just say that uh, the authorities say you cannot publicly declare the the gospel or any religious quote-unquote propaganda in Red Square in Russia. And so all of the Christian leaders get themselves together and they say, we ought to obey God rather than man. And they go out into the middle of Red Square. This never happened, but they go out in the middle of Red Square and they start preaching their hearts out. And the Russians come out with machine guns and kill them all. You know, those people could have met in different circumstances. They could continue to proclaim the gospel of Christ. They didn't have to do it in a way that directly defied the laws of the land. When our street preaching friends go out and preach, they make sure that it is legal for them to be in the specific spot. And they don't deliberately thumb their noses at the authority. Um, now we probably wouldn't want someone you know in a public place or in or in our private place of business promoting satanism so these laws they kind of cut both ways so anyway simple concept antagonizing or resisting the authorities results in judgment Let's look at the safety of acknowledging authority in verse 3. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. All right, so if if your authority is a legitimate authority and is walking within the mandate of their God-given responsibility of serving him, whether they know it or not. When you do what is good, you will not be punished for that. You might even be rewarded. When you do what is evil or what is wrong, you will be punished. Here's something that will really help to understand what this is saying. The governing authorities do not define right and wrong. You cannot rely upon your government to be the one that sets the standards for right and wrong. Remember, there's largely pagans and non-believers and and maybe people of of various non-biblical faiths that compose the government. So, but there is a law of God, a moral law that we read about in Romans chapter 2 that is written and that is engraved upon the heart of every person this general knowledge of what is right and what is wrong um, I think the serpent called it the knowledge of good and evil Adam and Eve actually 
received the knowledge of good and evil. They just didn't have the power or even the desire to do the good. That was the problem. But everybody can see good and evil. You don't have to be a Christian to see good and evil. It is, uh, it is as, as the American Constitution framers called it, we, we hold these truths to be self-evident. It is a self-evident truth that there are things that are inherently wrong. So, but these things, they don't come from the human heart. They come from God who made the human heart and from the witness of God even in his creation. There is real right and real wrong, but we cannot rely... It's not, it's not the... Uh, if, we, if we look to our governments to define what is right and wrong, well, then it is fine in our current... in our current... Uh, situation it is fine for a man to marry a man it is fine because there is no law against it to abort a baby right up until the moment of delivery if we allow those commonly accepted values which kind kind of becomes a grid for a democracy if we allow those to be the the uh, source of good and evil of right and wrong, uh, then that standard is going to change always and it's never going to get any better. But when rulers are ruling correctly, they are acknowledging God's standards and God's general rules and general understandings that are on every human heart unless it's corrupted and calloused and hardened the problem the problem in a democracy which is a good safeguard because everyone bears this remnant imagio deo the image of god everybody understands these things the problem is that the inclination of humanity according to chapter romans chapter 1 is to distance ourselves and remove ourselves and to rebel and to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So democracy, though it might be a safeguard in a godly people, when God is systematically pushed away from the, the center and where, where his standards no longer matter, where his word is no longer revered, right and wrong are turned upside down. Black is white, white is black. Woe to them that call evil good and who draw along sin as with cords that is the result so um, there's no perfect political system um, democracy may be better than tyranny in restraining evil but it's not the be all and the end all um, we're going to get to how we, we live by a different standard as Christians like, we can only expect so much of the world but in general any kind of authority, even if it is tainted, is better than tyranny or better than anarchy, right? There is protection and there is punishment for wrongdoing. Even in some of the most awful regimes, there is punishment for things like, like murder, you know, there, and, you know, there, for, uh, for other, other kind of anti-human anti crimes. All right. Now let's look at, uh, we've looked at the source of all authority, the stupidity of antagonizing authority, the safety of acknowledging authority. Let's look at the service of appointed authority, or in other words, how the appointed authorities, they're actually designated as servants. It says, verse 4, For he, that is, the authority who has this power to punish or to give approval, he is God's servant or God's minister for your good. Now, it used to bother me as a little boy when I see these politicians on TV and, well, there's a minister of finance. Mommy, why is he called a minister? Oh, well, that's, that's different than in, in church. But have you ever thought that these men 
are actually ministers of God, that they are actually servants of God. They're not necessarily willing servants of God, but they are his, they are his ministers, his servants, in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. God actually, in Jeremiah, he calls Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He went in to Jerusalem. He rounded up the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the young men, and so forth. And he took them away to Babylon three separate uh, times. And, and then he, uh, and, and one of the things he did was he put hooks in their noses and dragged them along like a string of fish. It was, but Nebuchadnezzar was his servant. It wasn't a very pleasant thing that he was doing, but it was for God's purpose. And we already, he's the same guy that built the statue and, oh, I never finished that story. Well, God, God made him crazy and then he, uh, and the reason he did is he stood up on top of his, uh, his palace and he looked out at the hanging gardens and all the wonders of Babylon. And he said, I've done a great job. I'm the greatest king ever. That's why God did that. And in his humility, God restored him. Um, so, but Nebuchadnezzar is called God's servant. The king of Assyria was God's servant, was a scourge to chastise his own people. And then when the king of Syria took credit for his own action and began to be a little bit puffed up, then God punished the king of Syria. You see, he's in charge of all of it. It's for his purpose. And though we may not always see or understand those purposes, um, there, is, there is this reality that he is God's servant for your good. Now, think of Romans 8, verse 28. All things, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All right. Nero throwing Christians to the lions, dumping hot lead down their throats, skinning them alive. All things work together for good. It doesn't, doesn't seem right, does it? Read on. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. See, Paul knew when he wrote that that leaders would not always be kindly affectioned toward Christians that there would be abuse, that there would be torture. He even uses the same terminology when it talks about the leader does not wear, uh, bear the sword in vain. Romans uh, chapter 8. I'll just turn there for a moment. Verse 33. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Can the sword of someone who is in authority that actually kills a follower of Jesus Christ, can that sword separate us from the love of God? The answer is no. Death is not, it, it, is, it is an enemy, but it is a defeated enemy because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, oh, look it, or rulers, you see, the same Paul is talking about rulers, saying they'll try to separate us from the love of God. They'll try to condemn us. They'll try to persecute us and kill us. But they can't do it. 
Then in, in, in a few chapters later, he's saying that those rulers are appointed by God. This is, it's, it's a, it's a head scratcher. And this, this is, this is serious um, wrestling to do with this text. But, nor, the, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor theft, depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In some way, even persecution is working together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Dying well in Christ. Dying with the name of Christ on your lips is your good. And that, that, that ruler that ruler will be dealt with under the vengeance of God. Even, and, and here's the thing. It gets all, it's, it's so hard to understand. But that ruler will be willingly doing what he wants to do. And yet at the same time, he will fulfill God's purpose and accomplish God's greater end. But God did not force that person to do that. That was the nature, the rebellious nature. And God takes things that are intended for evil and he turns them for good. So the service of the appointed authority, they, they, they serve for our good. Most of the time, it's not by killing us, thankfully. In a country such as Canada or the U.S., there is some heritage of godliness, which is rapidly diminishing. But our national anthem actually gives due credit where credit is due. God keep our land glorious and free. It doesn't say politicians keep our land glorious and free. There, there is at least that residual acknowledgement of God. Um, what we can do, as Paul exhorts in, in Timothy, is to pray for those, pray for rulers and those in authority. Why? That we might live peaceful and quiet lives. You know, that, that, uh, that there doesn't have to be bloodshed. But when we pray, if we pray for our leaders, do we pray for them in a kindly way? That God would soften their hearts, that God would change them, that God would um, open them, open their eyes to see that Christians are not the enemy. Christians are not haters. Christians are not trying to overthrow the government. All of these things were seen to be realities in ancient, in first century Rome. There was all sorts of muck being slung against Christians. And Nero, of course, blamed the Christians for the destruction of Rome. Let's look at the sort of avenging, avenging authority. He, does, he is a servant of God, an avenger. Okay, he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And this is the role, this is the expectation of every leader appointed by God. Now, I need to kind of go back, and there, there's... There's something we need to understand here. This letter was written to the church in Rome. Rome is the headquarters of the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. As Paul was writing this, I'm sure he knew that these words were inspired by the Holy Spirit and were intended to give instruction to the church until the return of Jesus Christ. I'm sure he also knew that in defense of their position and of their practices that any self-respecting leader would want to see their documents. And when the Christians could show the Romans this is our commandment, this is our 
This is our position with regard to authority. We're not out to get you. We're not out to overthrow your government. We serve a king, but he's not a king like you. He's not a king that conquers territory by force and that imposes taxes and all that. We serve a king who who, uh, has given us life in Christ. And it, it, it's, it's a separate thing from your kingdom. We're not working against you. That's what has separated Christianity, for example, from Islam. Islam was, for the first three centuries of its existence, was, well, especially after Muhammad got a chip on his shoulder, was advanced at the at the point of a sword. Christianity advanced <laughs> at the point of the sword, but the sword was pointing at them. It, it was not resisting, it was not aggressive. The gospel spread because people hostile to the gospel chased. Oh, would could those rulers perhaps have been God's servants in chasing the Christians out of Rome, in pursuing them to the ends of the earth? And as they're going, they're fulfilling the Great Commission and preaching the gospel to every creature. So there's, but this avenger, if the laws of the land impose a death penalty for murder, that is in no way out of sync with God's own judgment on murder in the Old Testament. Putting someone in jail for a crime, that's a, God, that's a biblical thing to do. That's a power that is given to those governments. So um, pulling, over, uh, uh, pulling me over on the way to, to Walmart, doing 70K in a 50K zone, I felt that sword was an expensive sword. <laughs> but it was... That's a long time ago. I've repented of my... Oh, that was with my white car. It, anyway. Uh, <laughs> the car is full. Yeah. That, that car was, that car was a, a form of divine retribution, I think. But, um, but those... The law has to have teeth. And there has to be consequence. And God's own law has its consequence, right? Violating God's initial basic laws in the garden carried the penalty of death. So as a representation of his authority, there is penalty for sin. There is penalty for wrongdoing. And that is a reality. You know, I've just this week, I've, I've observed some attitudes toward authority and if some of you, like, I know that, Dwayne, you've had a lot of people underneath you in the pyramid and probably a lot of people above you, too. But um, when you're in a position of authority, the worst thing, the worst thing to deal with is when someone actually does not recognize your authority and actually defies it and says, in, in effect, make me. Right? You need, you need a sword in a case like that. And uh, as I was teaching school this week, there was a, a young man, and uh, he was walking down a, a narrow passage between the windows and the computer desks, and he took this big piece of black rubber, and he snipped or snapped one of the girls. And she turned around and punched him and whatever. Um, she, she literally did. And I thought, well, good for you. <laughs> but anyway... And I said, I, I won't say his name, but I said, hey, buddy, you can't, you can't do that. And he just kept walking like this. I'll do what I want. And then later on, he was, uh, he's older than the rest of the kids. And he was sitting with a, a group of young, young fellows there. And he started to tell off-color jokes and to use inappropriate language. And I said, um, buddy, you need to clean up your language. I'll say what I want. 
it, it, if, if, there's any, if there's any righteous indignation in me, just try to imagine the one who created you, the one who gave you life, the one who gave you life. And he lays out the standards and he lays out correction. And your response is, I'll do what I want. I'll say what I want. And I try to explain, well, what you do and what you say will have consequences. And when I talked to one of the teachers afterwards, she said, that's or actually the principal, the one who actually bore the sword. She says, if that guy acts up again, send him to me. You don't have to put up with that. So there's a sword. There's a higher, there's a higher authority. But um, when... Uh, well, this happens to me once every sermon where I forget and lose my train of thought. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's God telling me to be quiet. All right. Anyway, um, so he had, he had no, no regard for authority. And because the consequence had never been, oh, she said in his home? It's never been. Even even the police, they let him off with a pat on the head. You see, that sword is absolutely necessary. All right. The subject's attitude toward authority in verse 6. For the same reason... Oh, verse 5. Therefore, we must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. See, the believer has a twofold motivation. Not getting a speeding ticket is a good incentive not to speed, right? Not getting the electric chair is a good incentive not to murder, right? I mean, if it doesn't make, I mean, if, if that's all there is, there's a problem. But, but also for conscience sake. Everyone has a conscience. Unbelievers have a conscience. Believers have a conscience. Ours are activated and acted upon by the Holy Spirit which means not only do you have the penalty for sin or the penalty for wrongdoing, the just consequences as a motivation to do right, but you've got a conscience. And not only do you have a conscience, but you have a spirit-enlivened conscience. You are connected and you are in fellowship with the God of the universe and with his holiness. And you need to respond for both reasons. It's better for you to avoid the sword, it's also a matter of conscience. And the, the thing that, again, this is another thing that I've observed from teaching, that most people, most people, their incentive, most people will sin if they know they won't get caught. There's only that one motivation. It isn't an issue of right and wrong. It isn't an issue of conscience. It's an issue of can I get away with it? Can I avoid the wrath that is associated with breaking this? So there's those two reasons. Wrath, but conscience. Now it gets, now this attitude kind of gets a little personal here. For the same reason you also pay taxes. For the authorities of, are ministers of God attending to this very thing. In other words, these guys have given their lives to be servants of God to make sure that law and order happens. And you need to understand that it is God's plan that they have a means to live and that they have a means to carry out the measures that they need in order to create um, order within the society. So pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So these are all um, expectations. These are, these are direct um, imperatives. We don't get a free pass on paying taxes. Now, it gets a little complicated, doesn't it, when our taxes fund things that are morally reprehensible, such as killing babies. 
some constitutions make provision for resistance when the government goes beyond its scope. The United States has a constitution like that. And they have a second amendment which says you can bear arms, you can form a militia, you can, if the federal government oversteps its bounds, the state can push it out. Sort of something like that's happening right now in the United States. Uh, by the way, there's, there's something fundamentally wrong with sort of the assumption at the base of the American Constitution, which is that it is the people who give the authority to the politicians. I'm not saying that that's not a legitimate government. It just doesn't recognize the ultimate source of authority. Well, it kind of does. These things are self-evident and these rights are in the... There's a, there's a sort of a tip of the hand that there's a higher authority. But let's say no matter how your government gets there and whether they acknowledge God or not, the principle is the same. Pay taxes. Obey them insofar as you're able to obey. Submit to them. Um, if they're not causing you to sin and they're demanding too much of your paycheck, cough it up, you know. Um, but, again, there, there, I think there is a sense in which, or there's a time where authority, biblical authority, is, is lost. And the, the example is Saul, King Saul. He lost his authority. But you know that David would not usurp and would not take the authority until Saul had died. He, there was that underlying respect, um, even of a king who was out to kill him and out to get him. So um, I believe the Holy Spirit will give wisdom. There's times when you got to stand up. Somebody had to stand up and stop Hitler. In fact, God himself, I believe, stood up. What if Hitler had exterminated every single Jew? Could we have Romans chapter 11 be a laughingstock? All Israel will be saved? What? Makes a lot more sense. A remnant will be saved. Right? There's God, God is keeping his word. But God had to stop the slaughter. Same as he did for Pharaoh. Same as he did for King Herod. You know, God... And yet, somehow, these men, these evil men, at least until their authority was taken from them, were considered these ordained authorities. Oh boy, what time is it? Are you kidding me? Oh, okay. Well, we're going to stop there. <laughs> There's just so much here. John Piper took four messages to get through the first seven verses. Um, I should have maybe split it up a bit. I didn't get to the best part because there's... If we live, if we live under the law of God, which is love, if we honor the true authority... That is the best path that we can take to not ticking off the temporal authorities. When we love our neighbor as ourself and love God and do what he says. That's, uh, that law of love, that really comes into play in the last part of the chapter. I thank you for your patience. I, I had no idea. I have a watch. But the band is broken. Um, so Rhonda says, well, go out and get a watch. I said, I've got a watch. It just doesn't have a band. Buy a band. So I'll try to do that. I'm, I'm pretty sure we can trim things down a bit. <laughs> or maybe a nice clock at the back. All right, let's pray. Father, it has been good just to to reflect upon what it means that you are sovereign and that you, in your sovereignty,
give authority and institute authority in this world. And even though this world is a complete mess and there's so much that is wrong, these authorities are your servants. Um, and they serve your purpose. We thank you for the assurance in your word that these authorities are also accountable to you. And, Lord, that you have limits set for them. And, Lord, that you will accomplish justice when they go beyond the scope of authority that you've given them. I thank you, Lord, that even the authority of Satan will be finally destroyed when he's cast into the bottomless pit and that Jesus will reign forever and ever. And Father, I pray that we would understand the significance that we are already under the authority of Jesus Christ. Lord, that as we speak, as we live, as we serve one another, we do so with the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And Lord, as Jesus spoke with authority when he spoke your word, we speak with authority as we speak your word. And, and Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us advanced understanding of how everything is going to work out for your glory. That we will indeed be received into your gracious and glorious presence without fault and without and with great joy and that you will keep us from falling no matter what comes i pray lord that you give us the right attitude toward our authorities that we would pray for them as your word instructs that we would be subject to them lord that we would challenge them where we can um, that we would uh, that we would consider that these things are for our good thank you lord uh God, I, I pray for wisdom in everybody's minds to sort this out because I, I don't feel that I've clearly represented your counsel. But Lord, you've, you've used the, the words of a donkey in the past and I just trust you to, to make these words make sense and help us to apply them appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen.